What up, guys? Welcome back to the Foam Frat Podcast. Tyler here. If I sound a little bit weird, it's because I'm recording the intro to this podcast on a Samson USB mic that clips onto the top of my MacBook while I sit up in my boss's office at work, and it's a huge room, so it's kind of echoey, blah, 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 blah. That's why it sounds different. We're going to talk about pretest probability and risk stratification. Uh, This is something that's really not talked about in EMS. And so Chip Lang from the Total EM podcast uh, came on. He's a PA in Missouri, and he's going to talk about how he uses risk stratification and how maybe we could even think about possibly applying this in EMS. I think you guys will enjoy. So let's talk a little bit about pretest probability, because I feel like in EMS, we don't really pay enough attention to this. And it's more so like we're going through different tests that we have. You know, granted, we do not have a whole lot of diagnostic tests that we can do pre-hospital, uh, but it's more like checking off boxes. Like, all right, I checked the glucose. I did my 12 lead. But are we doing it because we think we're going to find something? And Aiden Barron, who I love that guy. He's amazing. He put out a thing, a tweet the other day. And he said, if you cannot explain what the pretest probability is, then you do not get to pick up the ultrasound. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting because he's basically saying that if you don't have the stats, if you cannot say what exactly you're looking for, well, then don't just do something to do it. And so because you and I work in two different domains, I thought you'd be the perfect guy to come on and talk a little bit about illness scripts. Uh, what these look like in your head, kind of how you formulate a pretest probability, and then how you correlate that with the likelihood ratio and then a post-test probability. So, Chip, when you have somebody that walks in and they're kind of giving you the story, they're telling you about their symptoms, um, you're sitting there looking at their vital signs, uh, before you order any test, how do illness scripts kind of change your momentum or your diagnostic momentum towards where you're going to go and what type of tests you're going to send? Well, first off, Tyler, thanks for having me back on again. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a little shocked that you think I, I'm the right guy for this. But since I'm already on here, um, I, I like to break it down almost in something that I learned from undergraduate from my favorite professor of all time. Um, is the difference between a wag and a swag. And a wag is just a wild-ass guess. And then a swag is a scientific wild-ass guess. And, and the reason <laughs> why I like that is, is because it really defines what you're doing. So if I just randomly uh, got a random uh, blood glucose on every single patient that walks into the door, that's a wild-ass guess, right? Because eh, it could be high, it could be low, it could be fine. But if I have a patient who is ultra-mental status where the pretest probability is higher that there may be something glucose-related than just the general population, now that's a scientific wild-ass guess. So WAG versus SWAG. So, you know, with any test, and, and Aiden's on the right track, and I agree with Aiden. Like, you need to know what you're looking at and what that means before you just start playing around with it. Because... When I have a patient that I'm using ultrasound with, which I just did a whole double header on ultrasound um, just a f- few days ago, you know, we're doing this as a conjunction with the rest of the history and physical to try and answer specific questions or perform specific tasks. So to stick with the ultrasound example for a second, if I did an EFAS exam on every single patient who comes to the door, that's great in the training phase to see what normals look like and stuff like that. But that's not the, the type of exam I'm doing to answer questions for everyone. 
if I have a trauma patient, yeah, the EFAS can be helpful. Now, we can talk about how certain populations, such as pregnant patients, may already have a little bit of free fluid. And then we also know that pediatric patients have a little bit of free fluid. So going back to that whole pretest probability and trying to identify, well, maybe those patients, I'm going to need to look for a significant amount of free fluid versus in the adult male patient who shouldn't have any free fluid at baseline, like a little bit will, will trigger my senses that something's going on and that we need to pay more attention to that. So for me, it's all about the whole context. And what does that test do? Is that test going to be something that is really going to change my outcomes or it's something that I already know that's going to happen? For example, if we take the severely critically injured patient who obviously has this blowing up belly and we we can already tell that that with time this belly is getting bigger and bigger i don't need ultrasound to necessarily tell me that now ultrasound right. can sometimes be helpful in specifying where that's at how it's accumulating or sometimes it could be really be really lucky and say oh i can see the aorta has an injury to it but is that going to be my general population no so for me the test is all part of how does this contribute to everything else? I think the way I extrapolated pretest probability, you know, in my you know past ten years of experience as a uh, as a paramedic and as an EMT, was that it was a tool for people who are seeing more than one patient, you know, and and that's I'm not saying that that's the right view, but I'm thinking, all right, you know, doctors have maybe five, six, ten people inside the emergency department, you know, PAs, NPs, uh, docs that they're seeing, and they can't do every single test for every single person. I mean, that's just not efficient. Where when I'm in the back of the ambulance or I'm in the back of the helicopter, this is my only patient for maybe 15 to 20 minutes. So why wouldn't I listen to lung sounds, uh, get a glucose, do a 12 lead EKG? Why would I not knock all that stuff out during the transport? What do you think? So that's a that's a great question, and, and it's, it almost matters maybe a little less if you say have an hour transport time, like in the setting that I worked in, where realistically it was not uncommon for me to transfer a patient an hour away to the closest facility. So in that time, it, it may matter a little less, and we can talk about that more here in a second. But to answer your question, this becomes the whole conflict of checking off boxes versus doing something that that patient really needs. For example, I would rather you do the appropriate testing such as, hey, I've got an ultramental patient um, where they reported some chest pain just before this happened. The EKG and the blood glucose may be more important than establishing the IV access, especially if you were only talking about minutes away. But at the same time, you know, sometimes you're going to need to get other stuff. If we know these, this patient's going to need some medications right away, then maybe that IV is more important. So even though you only have that one patient for that, in your case, 10 to 20 minutes away, then, then yeah, you know, even though you think you need to do all this stuff that they tell you to do every single time, I'd rather you triage in a sense for, for almost lack of better words, take priority of what is the thing that you need to do first? So, you know, again, going back to your classics, like, you know, BSI scene safety, ABCs, and then you kind of move your way down. But 
if you just slam a bunch of tests home, so if you do a 12 lead EKG on every person who gets in your ambulance, yeah, that's going to be nice for like a billing purpose, but is that really going to be helpful to every single patient? No. But if you say splints and extremity because they came in with a twisted ankle uh, and, and you have some concerns for a potential fracture and you're looking for stabilization, I'd rather you do that than the 12 lead EKG. And, and obviously we're giving like kind of extreme examples here, but you know, this is something that you guys do and you're doing it every single day that you're working is you're already kind of figuring out in your head what needs to happen. So just apply that clinically and you'll actually be doing much better for yourselves when you start thinking ahead, like, okay, do I really need to do this on every single patient? And if for some reason I feel like I need to, do I need to start with that? Or can I wait until later when I've got that downtime, like when you have that hour transport working with that later? All right. I funneled you right where I want you. That's why I asked you that question because I have shifted. (laughs) No, you did great. Um, But I have shifted my thinking on this a little bit because I think that the reason you throw the whole kit and caboodle at them is because our illness scripts and our heuristics are not as... um, accurate as a PA or an NP or a doctor. And I don't think we're taught how to look at epidemiology, how to look at those different symptoms and signs, and then formulate a pretest probability. Uh, We consider differentials. But if you look at what would be the safest route to go to catch as many life-threatening things as possible, it would be to do an EKG on every patient, to check a glucose on every patient. I remember it was taught to me airway, breathing, circulation, and then DEFG was don't ever forget the glucose. And everybody's got that story. Well, yeah, one time the guy was perfectly fine and talking to me, and then I didn't check his glucose and it ended up being, you know, 40. And in those situations, you know, and I'm getting a little bit off track here, but in those situations, I have to ask, well, uh, what did you do once you found out it was 40? Because if they're not symptomatic, uh, are you going to go completely off of that reading? Are you going to go ahead and, you know, give them some oral glucose? You know, if you start testing for things that you don't even have a pretest probability or a likelihood ratio, what are you going to do when you find something wrong? Are you going to start treating something basically just going off of, a test measurement or some sort of diagnostic testing. You know, if a patient comes into you, Chip, and you check their troponin and it's elevated and they have absolutely no ACS symptoms at all, what's going through your head at that point? So this is actually tying in very nicely. You, 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 of course, you led me into this, but um, uh, incidentalomas, you know, the types of things that you find by incident. And I love those stories when people are like, well, you know, because I did this extra test, I found this one thing. Yeah, but how many people did it take you to do that? What potential harms did you expose those other people to to find that one example? And like you said, you know, it'd be one thing if that blood sugar of 40 was in someone who suddenly became altered, then then yeah, that, that would be a time when I would have done that anyway. Versus if I had a patient where I just checked every single one of them, the blood glucose, what if in that same patient, 20 minutes earlier into the ride, you check that glucose and it was 100, well, you, you wouldn't have done anything different, right? But then 20 minutes later, blood glucose do- drops down to 40. Well, that changes the whole differential. But that's because of when you tested it. So incidentalomas, uh, I, I don't know how much this term has penetrated in the EMS realm, but we talk about this mostly with like CTs, for example. But this happens with any sort of findings. So this is the type of test or the type of finding where 
does it change your current clinical course? Probably not. But because you found it, now you have to address it in some form or fashion. It was found on incident, but that's what we risk when we do tests. That and we risk potential harms for people. Take, for example, if we did, um, there, there was a paper by, uh, I believe it was Weinstock at all. I had a couple other big names in the mix. I think it was Kevin Clower and uh, Scott Weingart. And I, I can give the paper to, to, to help clarify this. But if we admitted every single chest pain, we inevitably would do harm to a certain amount of patients. And the same thing is true with any test or, or any type of function we do. So we have to consider, do we need to do this with every single person or can we be selective in our population? And like I said, we had to figure in costs behind it too. So not only cost to our patient or cost to our department, so whether that's EMS or EM or anywhere else, but also like cost to insurance, which increases healthcare costs in general. So doing an EKG on every single person, yeah, you can start finding stuff, but at the same time, what are you gonna do with those answers? What happens if you find someone that may have a slight ST elevation, but they complain nothing of chest pain? Are you gonna start pursuing that and then admit that person and everything else? When realistically, that was an incidental finding, or, or even better yet, someone overreads that EKG to assume that. And, and maybe they even place the EKG slightly incorrectly. So, you know, leads get flipped all the time and stuff like that. I see that all the time in the emergency department, even with ultrasound, you know, something that we're, we're interpreting at the bedside, you know, we can still incidentally find things. I, I think that's something that we have to keep in mind when we're doing these tests. It's not only the pre and post uh, test probabilities as well as likelihood ratios, but what happens when you find something that really wasn't what was going on because not only can you incidentally find things and now you have to go down that rabbit hole with it but could that distract you from the real thing that's going on in that patient because now you found something completely different than what you're originally expecting so we have to be careful with our testing for yet another reason now i'm going to go back to something that you just said because you said the distraction factor and i think maybe people who are listening to this are, are saying well what possible harm could you do uh, from from getting a 12 lead or from checking a blood sugar or, you know, whatever, if you have the ISTAT or the EPOC, you know, as opposed to like you looking at the possible injury or possible complications from like an LP compared to something more uh, benign. And I think that the key word is that distraction because you have a cognitive bandwidth. You're looking at scene safety. You got a bunch of data coming into you all at once. You're formulating doses. Uh, you're not writing orders for a medication to be delivered. You're actually delivering those medications. And so everything you do needs to be analytical and it needs to make sense. And I think that if we could start to shift EMS in that direction to where we are looking at pretest probabilities, likelihood ratios, we're formulating that illness script in our minds. And even if we had something like actually on paper, that would help us say, all right, you know what? This is my top priorities. These are my secondary priorities. And these are the last priorities. And it kind of goes down in an algorithmic flow. That way you could say, this is what I need to get done right away. You know, and yeah, putting the patient on basic monitoring, SpO2 blood pressure. I'm not talking about that. That's like every single patient. But going further, you know, looking, breaking out the ultrasound, that takes time. And if you have a 10, 15 minute transport, like you said, would your time be better spent looking through their medications, looking through their history, trying to figure out what the hell is going on? And I, I think it would. And I think that this may be something that starts to shift my practice as well, because 
I have a tendency to, you know, we're up in the air, we're flying a STEMI patient or we're flying, you know, some sick septic patient. And I'll be like, well, you know what? This is normally where I would check lung sounds, but I can't hear anything in the helicopter. So I'm going to break out the ultrasound and I'm just going to take a look. Am I wrong in doing that? And I, I don't think so, because I think if you looked at the pretest probability and likelihood ratio of uh, pulmonary events or, you know, wanting to document that their lung sounds are clear, you know, you could probably justify that. But what if while I was doing that, something else was going on or I didn't detect that an IV was infiltrating? And I know you can play the what if game, but this has just been something that I've been really breaking down and trying to think of my thought process when I go on these flights or even back when I was on the ambulance and how I could explain in front of a jury of my peers, each one of my interventions. And I think that's really kind of a good way of putting it. If you could explain it and the way we document at lifelink three is we use something called EMS charts and it's basically a chronological order of all the events. So it's not like you do one big narrative at the end, you used to do EMS, right, Chip? Yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know what that. I'm talking yeah, about? Oh, we yeah. put like a huge yeah. narrative in. No, it's like a chronological breakdown, and it starts at time zero, and you go all the way through till you give over the report. And I think that may be what is making me think about this, because I'll look at it and be like, all right, I started my IV, and then I gave the medication five minutes later. What was I doing in between that time? And I've been trying to coordinate my priorities with the priorities that are perceived like, oh, I have to get this done before I get to the hospital um, because I don't want the nurse to get mad at me or the stuff that actually needs to be done. Because I would venture to say that a lot of the stuff we do is because we have a fear of what type of repercussion would come if we showed up and it wasn't done. You know what I mean? Right. And I don't think we're trying to like condone defensive medicine per se. It's just we're thinking about our processes and what we're trying to do next. Um, one thing, Tyler, that you mentioned, and I'm, I'm so glad that EMS is starting to pick up on this because this is something that, you know, I, when, when I was doing this on the regular, it was kind of one of those like, yeah, I just did the whole big narrative at the end and, and, you know, try to finish it quickly before we got there because that way my partner wasn't pissed because we were hanging out in the emergency department for like half an hour for me to finish the report. Like I'm trying to write this as we're going on. Um, and, and now older, wiser, me realizes all the flaws with that but what i do now in the ed on the regular is um we have a progress note section and so you know the hpi in, in the exam we, we plug in right at the beginning but then i do um as part of my mdm my mdm is like a flowing type thing and i i don't know how much you guys use uh, medical decision making uh but or mdm notes but like we use this a lot and it's part of what counts for our bills billing purposes one thing that i am using is a throughout the whole time, I'm explaining not only what am I doing and why, but what am I thinking? Because there have been plenty of times with patients who present in one form or fashion, and you're like, okay, so we're going to start the, the workout, like we're going to work them up broadly, but we're going to kind of focus more heavily on, on this aspect of their care. And then 30 minutes later, a test comes back and you're like, well, shit, like this changes everything. And so you need to be able to document why all of a sudden you took a, a sharp left turn when you were supposed to go right? Because now, you know, even though so this is part of your workup and say you had some pre-test probability there, this isn't just, again, shotgunning like we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, but, but you had a plan and you had a reason why you ordered that test. But maybe that wasn't the first on your differential. Maybe that's like third or fourth on your differential. But now because of that one test, we oop, it went up to the top or maybe it went to second place. And so now... You know, we need to be able to explain why we weren't doing that type of workup 30 minutes earlier, especially if it's a time critical diagnosis. 
That's a great point. I, I think of the uh, sunk cost fallacy where you have somebody that's all into one intervention. I mean, you got a ton of diagnostic momentum and then something changes and you're like, well, crap. If I change my treatment now, if I stop treating this patient like they have pneumonia and start giving them aspirin and nitro, this report's going to look ridiculous. Like I had no idea what I was doing. And they liken it to somebody who hits a button for an elevator and they're standing there for like five to 10 minutes waiting for the elevator. And then the thought goes through your head, well, I could take the steps. But then you think, no, I've already sat here and waited long enough. I might as well just stay here. And that's something that you got to guard against in medicine because it can happen and you're transporting the patient. And all of a sudden you start seeing some changes on their EKG and you're going, man, maybe this isn't what I originally thought it was. And you have to reroute, especially in EMS. We don't have any background information at all on that patient, except for what they tell us. You know, we're not looking up their H and P on the computer and looking up their last 12 lead EKG. So everything is in the history. And like you said, sometimes you got to take that sharp turn and it, it's really important that you explain why you did that. And I think that's kind of the concept of what we're talking about is understanding the thought process and making sure that you're documenting that thought process as well. Because it's not just because, oh, you know, in paramedic school, they tell you, oh, you know, make sure you document well, because you could, you know, if you got to go to court and you're going to get sued and you're going to lose your license and blah, 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 blah. That's not why I do it. Uh, that post-resuscitation debrief or that post-call debrief is where I evaluate my own mental state and my own mental flow. And I don't know if you've seen on Facebook and on uh, Twitter, I've been putting out these kind of mental flow charts. Have you seen that? Yeah, actually, I was going to comment to you uh, before we got started, but I've been enjoying looking at those because they're great. They're great, especially like the IV occlusion one was was just spot on. <laughs> well, and I've been doing that. You know, yeah, I added some you know humor to it. But I've been doing these all the time, like after a call. So what I'll do is actually try to illustrate what was going through my mind when I was troubleshooting a piece of equipment. And then when I actually put it on paper and I say, you know, troubleshooting equipment or coming up with an illness script for a patient, I'd say, all right, so I was thinking this at this point, then this popped up and I was thinking this. And for some reason, for me, I'm a very visual person, putting it all down on paper kind of makes sense. And I think that does the same thing when I'm doing my charting. And I'm, I'm sure it's the same for you when you go back and you do your charting and you're like, all right, well, why did I do that? Oh, all right, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. And, and fortunately, I do a lot of my documentation in real time. And that's just because of my setting. And just because I've got so many different things going on with so many different patients, I actually will sometimes just before I call the uh, consultant would be like, okay, let me let me look through my stuff. And, and let me make sure I, I kept this whole story straight. Because it's not uncommon to be working with so many different uh, high acuity patients that you lose track yourself. So for me, with with this, I, I feel like the documentation is king. Um, and I've got multiple podcasts on my side on total EM talking about like your MDM and, and documentation pearls and stuff like that, but it's just so much more than just documentation because it is a recorded history, right? I mean, this is something that you'll be able to refer to your peers will be able to refer to your administrator, you know, in the rare heaven forbid type case, you get uh, lawyers involved and stuff like that. That timeline is crucial and you don't have to document every little thing. You just have to leave breadcrumbs behind as, as Kevin Clower explains, but it's all the same concept of we want to be able to make sure that we have a way to explain 
what we did, why we did it, and when we did it. And that's, I think, the biggest thing because let's face it, for anyone who's been working long enough, you know that patients, it's not that they necessarily change their story over time, but they think about new details or new things come up that you now ask them. They're like, oh, yeah, I remember about this. And so it's it's not necessarily anyone's fault that that happens because that's just kind of the nature of the beast. Um, I remember being a student and, and going nuts over the fact that I asked this patient this specific question and they said no. And then when the attending comes in as a student, like you feel kind of bashful because next thing you know, <laughs> they're like, oh yeah, I've been having chest pain for the last hour. And you're like, yeah, welcome to EMS, man. Yeah. Did you ask about <laughs> chest pain? All the time. Oh yeah, exactly. And that that's why we talk about you know, when we'll be coming to Windsor doing the whole neuro exam and stuff like that, because you want to be able to explain, no, when I did this, this is what I saw and this is why. And I, I was smart enough to catch this, but something changed in the story. You know, the patient all of a sudden realized, oh yeah, I've been feeling this way for the last little bit. And so, you know, at least in my area, it's like, I've been feeling like this for a hot minute. I don't know what a hot minute is still there. That's a variable time patient <laughs> to patient, but you know, it's always a hot minute. Uh, but, but in the end, you know, what we need to remember is that things will change over time and that those types of things are, are should be anticipated in medicine, no matter if you're working pre-hospitaling, in the hospital, interfacility, any of that type of stuff. So, you know, people who get pissed off about, well, like, why didn't you ask this? It's usually because you did or, or maybe you asked it in some form or fashion, but things change or the patient realizes something different or whatever. So I'm not offended when that happens. Like, I want to know, hey, did you ask this? And I won't be offended one way or the other, but I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. And that kind of goes back to that whole neuro assessment thing. I don't mind if you did an abbreviated neuro exam. I just want to know what you found and how you did it. Chip, this has been a great conversation. Actually, there's like so many more questions I want to get at. And I, we're already at 27 minutes. So we'll have to do like a part two, maybe get more into the stats and where you actually come up with your pretest probability number. Because if you look at the nomogram, um, where you have like the pretest probability on one side, the middle is the likelihood ratio, and then all the ways on the right. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you know, you I come from Missouri, stuff. so numbers are kind of complex for me still, but I think I know <laughs> what you're talking about. Yeah, it's just like a diagonal line and you draw it and it tells you what the, you know, looking at the likelihood ratio and the pretest probability, what your post-test probability is, you know, and I'm like, well, how do you come up with that number? Do you say, yeah, you know, there's a 50% chance this could be a pulmonary embolism. So I, I would like to get more into that, but I just wanted to do an introduction to it with this podcast. So thank you so much for coming on, dude. And uh, why don't you tell everybody what you're going to be speaking at or speaking about at WEMSA. All right, so I have two fun things that I get to do at least this time around. Hopefully, hopefully Tyler brings me back again so I can do this again later this year, or I guess next year. Oh, yeah. Um, but the, the two main topics that we get to talk about is, one is how to do a neuro exam, like a proper, good, quick neuro exam, and how to do it in like two minutes, because that's what, I, that's what I've got it down to at this point. So this is um, a great one to go to because, man, you can learn so much about the neuro exam and you can make yourself look like a rock star when you bring, come in with a patient and say, hey, this patient has some signs of cerebellar stroke because really like the fast is just not that, that good with that kind of stuff. So, you know, not only cerebellars, but just overall and be able to explain that and how to, to do it properly. So that's one part. And then the other one, which I, I really enjoy, I've been noticing this more since we did the podcast, is Awakened Dead when you have CPR induced consciousness. And, and this really is a thing. And I almost guarantee you that, especially for those of you that run codes more often than not, 
you will notice that there'll be these little limb movements and those types of things. And so we're going to talk about what exactly CPR-induced consciousness is, the whole spectrum of it, and how you can properly treat it. So that way you can have uh, a safe and, and hopefully successful resuscitation. Awesome, man. That sounds great. Well, Chip, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, do you mind giving us a tagline? Wait, my tagline or, or? No, ours. Oh, shit. There's a tagline. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, damn. I was like, hey, I've been listening to this podcast for a while. I know that there's a, not a tagline, but I'm going to say mine now. No. Until next time, I'm going to by total care. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> All right, see you, buddy.